All right, we're going to go ahead and get started today with the 142nd Psalm. This is a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the, the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Heavenly Father, Thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for allowing us to meet in peace and without uh, confrontation this morning. Thank you for each person that's uh, here to attend. And uh, I would ask that you would uh, bless them with something that they could take home with them, a, a lesson or a, a part of your word which inspires them and uh, just that they can carry it with them and reflect on it and think about it. And uh, it's something that we should be doing at all times anyway, is thinking about you, contemplating you, just as David did. And Lord, we just want to give you praise. We want to give you honor. We want to give you glory because you are a great God and all things that you do are perfect in every way. Lord, help us to be faithful stewards of what you have given us and obedient to your word. And in all things, give us the mind to turn around and thank you for every good blessing that you bless us with each and every day. We want to give you praise, glory, and honor, and especially for what you've done by giving us your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's see. I got uh, just a few, uh, few announcements. Um, we have actually, for the first week, I can now say this, we've actually started working on the building. Um, we, all the permits were approved. It was very expensive paying for the approval of the, uh, the permits. I couldn't believe how much. But apparently there are 20 inspectors that will have to come out and inspect different things. I mean, you talk about bureaucracy. There it is for a building that's 1,200 square feet. But um, that's, uh, that's the nature of it. And uh, uh, we, I asked the contractor, which I have not asked him to this point. I said, how long do you think it'll take? And he says he thinks it'll take between 8 and 10 weeks to finish the work. Seems like a long time to me. Maybe he's just figuring long. I don't know. Uh, but he said the main problem is that the inspectors have to be set up and come out, and sometimes that causes a delay. So uh, anyway, we're ready to uh, at least get moving, and I've been working there three days in a row, and I'm, I'm tired. And then last night I performed a wedding ceremony of a girl I went to high school with, and uh, I was out way, way past my bedtime. So I'm a little rough today, but uh, anyway, uh, hopefully things will go okay. And um, this is our 76th Genesis sermon today. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 31. And um, I was talking to somebody just before we started the service, and I will say it in case anybody's listening on uh, YouTube that does attend from time to time. Uh, we, when we move into this building, I don't want to read the Psalms anymore. I'm hoping on having music there. And uh, we can't have that unless we have musicians. So if somebody wants to come and volunteer, I don't care if they play the guitar or if they play uh, uh, pre-recorded music, it's not something I have skill with. I have no uh, specialty at all in that kind of thing, and uh, I wouldn't know how to set it up to make it a logical, uh, smooth performance. So please, anybody that wants to volunteer in that respect, please do. And uh, there are other things that uh, I would hope that you'd volunteer for and just 
find a niche in there so it, it becomes a home instead of rather just a place where you come for an hour a week, which Church on the Beach has always been kind of just come, listen, and go. And I would hope that it would be more than that once we move into this building. So a um, uh, couple prayer requests. Paul and Elaine are traveling. They're, uh, they just had a, a granddaughter, and uh, so they're gone. And um, they're also, uh, my brother is in the service for the weekend. He's a weekend warrior, and uh, he's gone. And uh, I'm sure there are other people that are traveling. I know uh, Darla here is going to be traveling this week. So if you just keep people in prayer throughout the week of, as far as uh, traveling or as far as uh, being away from Sarasota or also for, you know, everybody here seems to know everybody else's physical problems or trials or uh, the like. And uh, so just remember to keep people in prayer. Paul talks about prayer and that it's effective and uh, that the prayers of the many have more effect than the prayers of just one. So uh, uh, just pray without ceasing, Paul says. Let's do that. And uh, let's remember just to uh, uh, lift up the cares and needs of other people. Uh, I will do a New Testament reading this week. We're a little bit uh, uh, short on the uh, sermon. It's only 17 instead of 19 pages. So uh, we have time to do a, a New Testament reading. I'm going to read from Romans 16, and I'm just going to read 16 verses. Very minimal comment. It's not a Bible study. It's just something to uh, uh, kind of keep you in the uh, the mode of the, uh, the New Testament. And uh, chapter 16 is the last chapter of Romans. It's mostly greetings and uh, people's names. I think there's like 32 people's names that are mentioned. But uh, it does serve a purpose, and so we'll go ahead and read that as well. Uh, chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Um, good lesson there about Phoebe is that when people are visiting and they are uh, uh, faithful in the church wherever they attend, that you want to attend to them as well. And if somebody is coming to Sarasota and uh, when we have a church building and uh, uh, they're coming down maybe to assist or to do something, let them into your home. Give them a place to stay instead of having them stay in a uh, uh, you know, a hotel and pay for it. Uh, you know, if you have an extra room and you could be kind to them, uh, it's just something, a, a common courtesy that Paul is asking for Phoebe and that we should kind of remember for others as well. Uh, verse three, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And you read about them in the uh, book of Acts as well, um, who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house, um, something that I will say, and at least in the initial uh, moving over into this building, this is going to be a house church, even though it's in a uh, uh, building, a commercial building, it will be no different than a house church on at least the initial setup. There, it won't be a, a corporation or nonprofit or anything like that. It's going to be a people of uh, gathering together simply to worship the Lord. And uh, I'm doing that uh to establish the church and if anybody at some point wants to make it into a, an actual church and you know nonprofit status and all of that you're more than welcome to organize that and that is something that would have to be done and then the church would have to start paying rent for the building because uh, legally somebody can't own a building and have a church in the same building it has to be a corporation renting from somebody and it's it's all uh, you know government stuff but uh, my preference is to just leave it the way it is. And if people don't want to donate, don't donate. I mean, that's your choice. But uh, if you are donating to get a tax deduction, you're probably giving for the wrong reason anyway. So um, it's just how I feel about it. And by having it set up the way that we do, there's 
absolutely no government interference at all. They can't interfere in you in any way. You're just simply using an empty building, basically, to, uh, to get together. And uh, that would be my preference, but it, it does not mean that's the way that it has to be. It has to be something that the people mutually want to agree on. Um, but uh, the, the early church is the way that you see this in the Bible. And we've gotten into these big mega churches and people expanding and, and little sub-corporations and all of this. And I, that's not the biblical intent at all. It's to be a gathering of people that are there to worship the Lord and to, to be a community with each other rather than having their eyes on you know bigger buildings and more money and more people on the payroll and all that. And that's what he is kind of referring to here. Um, Greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. In other words, that means he was the first convert of this region of Achaia to Jesus Christ, the first fruits. Um, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles and who also were in Christ before me. So he's saying these people knew the Lord before I did. We're all in prison together and uh, make note of them. And uh, uh, verse uh, 8, greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stechis, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Um, verse 14, greet Asynchronitis, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So a lot of greetings there. He hasn't finished with the chapter, but uh, he does more greeting in this particular book than all the other books combined. He uh, uh, just You could see his love for these people and how desperately he wanted to be with them and to share in the Lord with them. And uh, one of the names in there, Rufus, it's possible that he was uh, a son of Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross. It's an unusual name. He's uh, meeting in this particular church, and he's noted, uh, uh, you know, Simon of Cyrene, I think uh, it says the father of Alexander or Rufus or something. Anyway, this guy Rufus may be that person, but uh, uh, that's just speculation. But uh, anyway, um, there we go with uh, Romans 16, and we'll go ahead and read one more quick psalm, and then we'll have a sermon for you. Uh, this will be the 143rd psalm. This is a psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no one living is righteous. A little humbling there. He, David understood the corrupt nature of man, and I'm going to cite a verse today. Our text verse today will be something that I hope you'll listen to, and uh, you understand the nature of all people. No one is righteous in the sight of the Lord. Uh, for the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness, like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is within me is distressed. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Selah. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. 
Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you I do trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring me my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. Oops, I do that every week, don't I? I'm going to need that to uh, read our uh, verses before we get into uh, the actual sermon. Um, today is Genesis, as I said, chapter 31. We're in verse 31 through 42. And if you're reading along, I would ask you to pay close attention to verse 33 and see if you can kind of figure out there's a dilemma in verse 33, which uh, I'm going to tell you about today, which I have read no commentary ever on this particular issue. And so unless somebody has written about it and it's just simply not recorded, which is very, very rare, you'll be the first people ever to uh, hear this particular insight. But uh, verse 33 is rather interesting in uh, how it's worded. Anyway, before we get into uh, the sermon, I uh, do this day in history as normal, and today is 2 June. Uh, 1537, on 2 June, Pope Paul III banned enslavement of Indians. And you know me, I'm not a great fan of the particular doctrine of Roman Catholicism, but uh, they do have good morality, even if their biblical doctrine is a little off. Their moral issues are usually pretty good. They're anti-abortion, they're pro-life, they're uh, uh, anti-slavery. And uh, this guy actually banned the enslavement of Indians. And, uh, you know, it's good policy because then you make friends with people and then you can more easily introduce uh, the knowledge of Christ to somebody you're friends with than somebody you're an enemy with. Uh, there were some of the conquistadors that went and uh, went to evangelize certain people and uh, when they didn't accept the Lord, they baptize them anyway and strangle them to death. And so you do read about those kind of things. It's not a good way of evangelizing. So there are better methods. And uh, one of them is to allow freedom to the people that you are, you know, have any control over at all. In 1774, the Quartering Act, which required American colonists to allow British soldiers into their houses, was reenacted. It was something they had, it was something they got rid of, and then they reenacted it. And the Quartering Act doesn't just allow British soldiers into people's houses. It mandated that that house took care of that soldier. So instead of building their own barracks, and their own garrisons, and feeding their own people, the soldiers just moved in any house they wanted, and they said, that's my room, and you're going to be feeding me at 6 o'clock every night. And you talk about an impetus for war, that's one of them right there. I mean, there are a lot of things that the British did that were just contrary to right reason when you're dealing with people that are already upset. And this is one of them, and uh, it eventually led to the uh, uh, Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, and the establishment of America, the Quartering Act. Uh, 1851, on 2 June, uh, this is one of those issues. It was probably bought, brought about by fundamentalist Christians that don't read their Bible. Uh, Maine became the first U.S. state to enact a law prohibiting alcohol. Uh, I've said this before. There are two times that this book prohibits alcohol. Two times, and they're both under the Old Testament, and neither applies to us today. One of them is the high priest. When he entered into the temple of the Lord, he and his sons who ministered before the Lord were not to drink alcohol. Obviously, you want to be right in your right state of mind when you are presenting yourself before the Lord. The second time, 
is something that was known as a Nazarite vow. That has nothing to do with Nazarene, where Jesus came from. A Nazarite was a vow that somebody made to the Lord, saying, I am wholly dedicating myself to the Lord. And it may have been for one day, it may have been for 50 years. But there are prohibitions in there, and it wasn't just alcohol. He couldn't touch anything from the, the grape. He couldn't touch the skin of a grape, not the seeds of a grape, nothing. And uh, it, once the vow was over, he could drink alcohol again. Once the priest was out of the temple and he was back home, he could drink again. I am not promoting alcohol drinking. You do what you want. I'm just simply saying that we need to adhere to this book. And this book does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol. It does prohibit drunkenness. But other than that, please don't feel that I'm trying in any way to promote something that uh, you think is wrong. I'm just simply trying to hold to the values that this book prescribes, okay? Um, 1886 on 2 June, Grover Cleveland became the second U.S. president to do something. Does anybody know what Grover Cleveland did? He got married while in office, and Grover Cleveland was the first to actually get married in the White House. So uh, pretty wonderful stuff there. And we come to 1896, and I know I'm going to blow this first name, so if you're Italian, don't get angry. Uh, Guglielmo Marconi, his radio was patented in the U.S. on this day, 2 June. And uh, if you know the story, Nikolai Tesla probably, probably invented the radio first. However, he didn't get the patent in. Marconi got the patent in. He gets the rights to be called the father of the radio. So... Um, uh, it, both of them were uh, intelligent men. I think uh, Nikolai Tesla was probably about 4,000% more intelligent than Marconi. He was, his mind could develop things without ever having his hand physically on them. In other words, he, took the, he invented the induction motor in his head, and then he went and he put the pieces together, and it worked exactly as he had uh, figured. And now we have three-phase power in our motors, which is much cheaper, it's much more efficient simply because the guy did it in his head. And he did this with most of his inventions. He simply thought up an idea, he built it in his mind, and then he built it, and it worked. So uh, anyway, but Marconi gets the uh, rights to the radio. Uh, 19, 1897, a guy named Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, he was 61 years old, and on this day he responded to rumors that he had died. Uh, he quoted uh, saying that uh, the report of my death was an exaggeration. So uh, there you go with Mark Twain with this uh, always fun humor. Uh, 1910, a guy named Ch Charles Stuart Roll became the first person to fly nonstop and double across the English Channel. So he didn't just go nonstop cross, he went double back. And it was on one of these things like a right flyer. If you see a picture of it, it's just this chintzy little thing. So, uh, I mean, it's kind of surprising what he did. But that kind of fits in with the Bible right there that... Uh, uh, Daniel 12 talks about knowledge increasing in the end times, and I bring that up from time to time, is that, uh, uh, you know, you look at 100 years ago where the world was and where it is now, and from 100 years ago all the way back 6,000 years ago, there was almost no change in human history at all as far as the development of ideas and things. And within 100 years, things have multiplied, not just uh, a little, but geometrically, and the Bible predicted that that would happen. Uh, 1924, again, to Indians. The American Indians, you got to wonder about this. American Indians were granted U.S. citizenship by the Congress. You know, they're here first. This is their land. Yes, we went in there and th there were wars, but we have wars with each other as well. But uh, these are uh, people that they're natives or, uh, you know, eventually everybody comes from two people, Adam and Eve. 
but uh, they migrated here before the white people did. And yet it took all that time until 1924 for the Indians to get their citizenship, which to me is just astonishing. Um, 1928, if you know China's history, nationalist Chiang Kai-shek captured Peking, China. And uh, there was the, uh, you, know, you had Sun Yat-sen, you had Chen, Chiang Kai-shek, and you had Mao Zedong, and all these uh, famous Chinese leaders were uh, vying for power at uh, uh, the time of the war. And eventually Mao Zedong prevailed. Chiang Kai-shek went into, um, what do you call it, exile in Formosa, which is now Taiwan. And uh, if you go there, it's called Chiang Kai-shek Airport, International Airport. So that's, uh, they, they still honor him there. And, uh, uh, of course, the, the communists won, and it has caused this little uh, area of problems in the world right now with everybody around them, because nobody is really sure from moment to moment of China's intentions about anything. And that's very similar to where we were with Japan before World War II. Nobody knew what they were up to. They were this great power, and uh, uh, we found out very quickly what they were up to. And we never know if China's going to do that or not. We just, uh, maybe they're waiting for an opportunity. They have a lot of cyber technology is one thing that China has now. And it is believed that, not for certain, but it's possible that they could actually shut down all of our grids in America on a moment's notice. And if so, then we would be in real, uh, uh, you know, a state where we could be attacked very easily. So you never know. Um, not here to scare anybody. It's just reality of the world we live in. Um, 1935, a guy named George Herman Babe Ruth announced his retirement from baseball. And, uh, you know, Babe Ruth was the uh, home run king for eons until I think, was it Willie Mays or uh, Hank Aaron? Hank Aaron beat his, uh, uh, I got a shaking head here, so I'm right on that. Thank you. Um, uh, and then 1953, Elizabeth, get this, 2 June 1953, Elizabeth was crowned Queen of England. And she is still lurking those halls 60 years later today. I mean, you talk about something that to me is astonishing. She, you know, she wasn't in her teens. I think she was in her early 20s. But she is still the regent of England to this day. Hello, sweetheart. How are you? Just I, I, I am astonished at the resilience of that lady. And uh, if you saw, what was it, the Super Bowl, was it, where uh, she parachuted out of a, a helicopter into Super Bowl Stadium or Anyway, it was an ad. She really didn't do it, but it was kind of a good ad. Um, anyway, uh, 1966, Surveyor 1, the U.S. space probe, landed on the moon and started sending photographs back to the Earth of the moon's surface. And it actually took photographs of its own shadow on the moon, and this was the first soft landing on the moon. And I don't know what that means. Maybe there was a hard landing and something blew up on the moon. But uh, anyway, uh, we're getting ready to go from Earth to the moon, and uh, this was one of the uh, stepping points for it, and uh, it just, once again, Daniel 12, knowledge will increase, things will happen, uh, it says people will run to and fro, uh, indicating that the world will become smaller and there'll be more movement, and all of this is seen right in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 12. Uh, finally, we have 1995, this is kind of recent, but uh, because I was the U.S. Air Force for nine years, four months and 15 days, I thought I'd include this. Um, Captain Scott F. O'Grady was shot down by Bosnian Serbs. And uh, six days later, he was uh, rescued. And in his time of hiding from these people, because they were looking for him, he had no food. And so he actually ate grass 
and he got down, found rivers, and he drank out of the streams and rivers. But uh, uh, he's as close to a hero during that particular era of our, uh, uh, you know, our leadership role in, in the world as anybody else. I mean, there wasn't a real active war at the time other than Bosnia, and it was mostly just people going in and blowing things up with airplanes. But he actually became a participant in this. And uh, I had a friend that served in Bosnia as well, and uh, uh, he enjoyed it very much. But uh, uh, Captain O'Grady, he was uh, one of these tough kind of guys. So uh, there you go. We'll go ahead and uh, that's this day in history, too, June. And we'll read our uh, passage, and then we'll go on from there. This is chapter 31, verses 31 through 42. And this is called, What is My Trespass? And what is my sin? Uh, let's see here, verse 31. Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of, of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you, and your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. They're young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day, drought consumed me, and the frost by night and sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house these 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. All right, surprisingly, the order in which the children of Israel were born to their mothers, to whom they were, uh, to the mothers that they were born to, provides patterns which gives us clues about the future of the people of Israel. In the same way, today's account reaffirms this exact same pattern. Unbeknownst to Jacob, Rachel stole the idols of her father and carried them along with her. A search is made for these idols, and the order of the search along with a few other hidden details, shows us once again and quite clearly that Israel would have two exiles during their history. At some point after the ending of the second exile, which occurred during some of our lifetimes, they will go from the law to grace. They will return from their second exile on 14 May of 1948. They are still a people living under the law, but someday they will understand their Lord and they will call on him, and they will go into the dispensation of grace. They will give up their idols, which they currently have many of, and they will turn to the Lord and his perpetual fountain of grace. All of this is symbolized in this beautiful story today, which occurs on Mount Gilead. We have full assurance that Israel will call on the Lord as a people, and Christ will return to them. Just as the ancient prophets 
saw and just as Jesus Christ himself said. And to see this clearly, he has included details of this in a search for household idols. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Jeremiah. It's very sobering words. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Laban went after Jacob as he fled to his home back in the land of Canaan. The night before he met up with Jacob, the Lord searched him out. And in his dream, he told him to speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. This was not an isolated instance in human history, but it is the way that God deals with all people. He searches our hearts, he tests our minds, and he rewards us according to our actions. Doesn't specifically speak to us though. If God is speaking to you, I think there's something that we need to get corrected, but he does search us out and he does reward us according to our actions. In order to be pleasing to God, we need to know what pleases him. The way we do this is through understanding his word. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I got three short thoughts for you today. The first is Laban's search. Last week we saw Jacob get his family together and head for the land of Canaan. After he left, Laban heard that he was gone and pursued him. And so this is where we're gonna to begin today in verse 31. Verse 31 says, Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. His answer attends to the matters of the wives first, rather than any theft that Laban suffered. What Jacob notes here is not far-fetched at all. The world of Islam today would do exactly this. If somebody were to marry a Muslim, the family would take one of three courses of action. The first would be to insist that the non-Muslim convert to Islam. The second would be to steal the family member back by force. And the third would be to execute them for marrying outside of the faith. These are normal among them. And this stems from the mindset of the people of this very area of the account that we're looking at right now. Jacob had worked for and paid off his debt to Laban. And he also took nothing from him when he left. Rachel's the one that stole the household gods, which he knew nothing about. He had every right to leave and his flight was actually the prudent thing if you think about it considering all of the circumstances of the last 20 years he was wise in just taking off and going verse 32 with whomever you find your gods do not let him live in the presence of our brethren identify what i ha have of yours and take it with you for jacob did not know that rachel had stolen them after addressing what he felt was the main concern which was his daughters he brings up the second matter and he does it in a way which would confirm his innocence. If the idols are found in his camp, Laban would have the right to execute whoever stole them. He makes this agreement openly, as it says, in the presence of our brethren. This would be in the presence of everyone, those with him and those with Laban. They would all be impartial witnesses. So if the idols weren't found, Laban would have absolutely no recourse because Jacob's innocence would be seen. At this time though, Jacob has no idea that it's Rachel who stole these, these idols. And his words, do not let him live, are probably gonna be regretted later because very soon Rachel is going to die giving birth. And he may actually feel that this was God's divine judgment based on his words, which he speaks in this verse. As Matthew Henry says about this particular idea, he says, how just soever we think ourselves to be, it is best to forbear imprecations lest they fall 
heavier than we imagine. And I'll give you an example. Suppose you're having an, a, an argument with somebody and you say, I wish that person would die. Then the next day they die. You are always going to wonder, although I don't believe God works that way in this age, you will have that on your mind. You know, the last thing I ever said about this person was something that I probably shouldn't have said. And that's what Jacob is probably going to suffer with for the rest of his life based on his words about these idols. Another important one to consider, and I see this from time to time on Facebook, is somebody will post something about the president or the vice president. They'll say, you know, if only somebody would take him out. And I think, you know what? You go saying something like that and it actually happened, then who is going to come and start questioning you? Because what you post is public. You don't ever want to make these uh, unjust imprecations with your mouth because justice may fall heavier than you had actually imagined. And that's what we're to get from this particular verse. Now, along with these gods, Jacob adds in an all-encompassing note. He says, identify what I have of yours, take it with you. This allows Laban, right in front of everyone, to make a claim to anything in the camp that belongs to him. And by doing this, Jacob is proving that everything that goes along with him after this will be attested to as his. There will be no later ability to make a claim on anything he has. And this is important, and you're going to laugh when I say this, but believe it or not, a few years ago, in 2003 as a matter of fact, so it's 10 years ago this year, somebody in Egypt tried to sue Israel for the goods that they plundered at the time of the Exodus. The Bible records the Exodus. It's in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. And in that account, it says that Israel plundered the Egyptians as they left. And so a guy named Nabil Hilmi, who is the dean of faculty of law at Egypt's Zigzag University, announced his plan to go ahead and sue Israel. And it was uh, published in the Egyptian Government Weekly, a uh, uh, newspaper called Al-Aram Al-Arabi. So here he is, he's intending to sue Israel. Now what's the problem with that? This suit disappeared very quickly because suing Israel based on an account in the Bible would therefore put the Bible on record as an authentic document. It would verify the entire Bible by doing that. Once they did this, then they would have to admit Israel's right to the land of Israel and they would also have to admit everything else about Israel, including being God's chosen people. That is the last thing in the world that the Muslims want. And it's kind of funny, that, but this is the thought process that goes on in the people, the minds of the people who have hated and who still hate Israel. And I tell you what, God continues to look after these people, even against people who are in the church who attempt to diminish Israel's role in the world. And yes, there are denominations that actively work against Israel. They will support the Palestinians at the expense of Israel. They will not buy Israel goods. They've sold all of their assets and holdings that were uh, a part of the nation of Israel. And this is the mindset of those people. But this is not unknown to God in any way, shape, or form. Now we come to verse 33 and pay attention. Pay attention to the order of this search here. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents. But he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now I'm gonna stop here, I'm gonna take something, I'm gonna pass it out, it's on both sides, and I want you to kind of look at this and you'll see what I'm talking about as I'm saying it. All right. It's a bit hard to follow this particular verse unless you look at it as not necessarily being in sequence. And this is important. It seems to say that Laban went into Jacob's tent, then into Leah's tent, 
and then into the tent of the two maids, which must be inside of Leah's tent, and then into Rachel's tent. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all, and people have proposed various reasons for why the order is so hard to understand. In reality, it could be that he simply went into each tent and he finished with Leah's tent and then went into Rachel's or something like that. And this is what people will argue over is how exactly he went through these tents. However it actually happened, the order that the Bible gives us is what's important because of who these people picture. The Lord is telling us this for a reason. Jacob is the leader of Israel. Leah pictures the law. Rachel pictures grace. We've seen this again and again in these past sermons. The search reflects the status of the people of Israel since their very inception. The first search is in Jacob's tent and it reflects Israel before the coming of the law. The second is noted as Leah. This is living under the law from the time of the law until a certain point in history. Then it mentions, surprisingly, the tent of the two maids, but the word is singular. One tent, two maidservants. And so the King James Version and the New King James Version are incorrect in their translation because it's one tent and there's two maids in it. This then would reflect the two times of servitude of the Jewish people after the law. The first was in Babylon for 70 years, and the second is the Roman dispersion, which happened in AD 70, and it continued, as I said, until 14 May of 1948. Then it says that Laban left the tent of Leah. So here's what's happening. He goes into Leah's tent, then he goes into the maid's tents, and then he leaves Leah's tent. How is that possible unless he's trying to show us a picture of something else? And this is it, the captivities of the people of Israel. Leah's tent was actually noted before the maids. After that, she goes into Rachel's tent. In other words, the two dispersions of Israel were under the law. Only after these dispersions will they, as a people, come into the covenant or the tent of grace. To understand this completely, one has to understand the regathering of Israel in modern times as it's laid out in Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38 and also in other books like Zechariah, which makes it absolutely clear that Israel is back in the land because God has directed it, not by some aberration of history. The same thing is seen in the order of the birth of Jacob's 12 sons. Son were, sons were born to Jacob through Leah, and then through the two maidservants, and then by Leah again, and only after that by Rachel. As surely as sugar is sweet, we're given these patterns to see Israel's history, Israel's history the law two dispersions, and then coming into grace's everlasting covenant. There is no doubt that this is what's being prefigured right here. And that gives us the assurance. The reason why this is so important is because it gives us the assurance of our belief that God does have a plan for the Jewish people. As I said, a lot of people, even in the church, dismiss this. And these clues are given to help us solidify our faith in this fact. Whether Israel is right with God or not is irrelevant they bear God's name. And that's the important thing that we need to continually remind ourselves. Verse 34, now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. Rachel obviously heard Jacob's words about putting to death whoever had the idols. And so she packs them away in a camel saddle and sits down on them. And she uses a bit of cunning by devising a plan to keep him from finding them. As he pokes around in her tent, she gives him news to help him decide where to look 
and where not to look. And that is found in verse 35. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you. For the manner of women, meaning I'm on my period, the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the idols. A lot of commentators, and I want you to know, if you read commentaries, the reason why I'm bringing this up is so that you know not to do this. You'll find a lot of commentators will insert Leviticus chapter 15 into this verse right here. Let me read you what it says in that chapter. If a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. Now, it's not uncommon for people to cite these verses right here and equate them with what Rachel has done. Because the law says that she's unclean, Laban wouldn't touch her because he knows that she's unclean. This is not correct at all. The law is the law, and this predates the law. Laban may not want to touch her because she's on her period, but it has nothing to do with the law. It is not because it is a precept found later in history. What's being pictured here is Israel's final rejection of idolatry. If you go to Israel today, or if you go into many Jewish homes around the world, and I've got lots of Jewish friends and I can attest to this, you'll see all kinds of idols in their house. You might see Buddhas or Feng Shui, or you might see some Hindu god made of brass or wood or stone, maybe a Krishna, whatever. They will have it. But Rachel has rejected the idols by sitting on them. Laban would never have imagined that they would be under her and that they would receive such treatment as this. But Israel of the future will defile the images that they have in their home someday. And this is found in Isaiah chapter 30. And it relates directly to this verse, what's going to happen in the future. Here's what it says. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. The word Isaiah uses here for unclean thing is the word da'ah a menstrual cloth. As surely as Rachel is sitting on Laban's idols, Israel will someday defile and cast away their idols too. In the same chapter of Isaiah, he tells us what it will be like for Israel on that day. Beautiful words. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. I gotta tell you what, the time is coming and I hope that it will be soon because in order for Jesus to come back to Israel, we have to be gone out of here at the rapture and I am waiting for that every single day of my life and I hope you are too. Our second thought today, Jacob's innocence, verse 36. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban and Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? If the gods were found, Laban would have had the upper hand completely and entirely. He could have claimed that some of the flock was stolen or maybe he could have made any other charge that he wanted, whether valid or not, it would not have mattered. But now Jacob has the upper hand and he exercises it to rebuke Laban. Jacob is found without guilt. The accuser can no longer accuse and he is vindicated before his brothers. 
Jacob's words to Laban right here are so perfectly reflected in a prophecy of the future in the book of Zechariah that it is astonishing. Let me read it to you. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall be no longer remembered. I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Here they are. They're right on Mount Gilead. If you were here last week, you know that that's translated as the perpetual fountain. And Israel is cleared of the guilt of the idols that he's been accused of, just as Israel will be cleared of the guilt of the idols that they have when the Lord opens a fountain to them. It's the, the, the patterns in the Bible are trying to tell us these things, that Israel really has a purpose and God is really going to return to these people. Man, I just, I, I, this stuff just excites me to no end. Verse 37, although you have searched my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. Now, Jacob's statement here implies that there is nothing of Laban's in his camp. When he says, set it here before my brethren and your brethren, put it between us, he's stating it in a way which means that Laban has found diddly. His actions in pursuing him have been baseless. And from this springboard of innocence, he's going to now explain in the front of everybody the mistreatment that he received. This will double Laban's guilt before all of them, and it will doubly vindicate him. And I'm going to give you a perfect example of this. If you weren't here last week, then uh, this will be news to you. But we had somebody come up and start accusing us that we had no right to be here. And uh, they uh, said that we were in violation of noise ordinances, that we were uh, wrong in meeting the way we are. And uh, this was an employee of Sarasota County, by the way. And um, we told them we aren't in violation of anything. We've done nothing wrong. And this person started accusing us of not being like Jesus and not being a proper flock of the Lord and all this kind of stuff. And um, anyway, five times at least, maybe more, I said, call the police, get them out here and let them handle the matter. And this is, like I said, this is a county employee. All she wanted to do was spout off at us. She refused to call the police five, maybe six times. Okay. So I thought about it for a couple days. And on Tuesday morning, I sent a letter to the administrator of Sarasota County who is, you know, he's right below the commissioners. He's the one that runs the county. And uh, that was immediately sent down to the uh, manager of Parks and Recs. And the manager of Parks and Recs immediately called me. And they were all over themselves apologizing for their treatment of us because we were in the right. And in the same way, this is what Jacob has done. He has called witnesses and he's saying, I'm vindicated in your presence. Just as we are doubly vindicated by having been uh, justified in the presence of police three times out here for different reasons. People have come and tried to get us to quiet down. We call the police and the police have always said you are in your legal rights and you're doing nothing wrong. And now in the presence of the county administrator and the chief of parks and recs, we have every right to meet here as does anybody else. And I got to tell you what, I had a Jewish man email me recently. He wants to have uh, his services, whatever, you know, a synagogue or whatever. He wants to do it on the beach maybe or somewhere on public property. And he asked me the legality of it. And we went through the whole thing. And I've told him everything that's transpired. And just talking to you right now about this reminds me that I need to call him and once again reconfirm that he has every right as a citizen of the United States to speak his religious beliefs in a public forum. Don't ever let anybody uh, hold you down, but make sure that when you get into such an altercation, be vindicated. 
get the police out if necessary, and also get in anybody that administers the legal aspect of these things, and you'll be vindicated as well. Absolutely certain of it. Verse 38, these 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of the flock. 20 years. This makes Jacob now 97 years old. During this time, he worked seven years for Leah, he worked seven years for Rachel, and then six for whatever possessions he now has. During all of that time, he showed his attentiveness to the flocks because it says that the sheep and the goats have born young. This means that they were well tended to because any goats or sheep that aren't well tended to will miscarry their young. He also says that he did not eat the rams of the flock. The females are rarely eaten because they're the ones that bear and so they increase your wealth. However, the rams can be taken from time to time, especially the weak ones, for a good yummy meal. But Jacob never did this. He never dipped into what belonged to Laban, although he would not have been wrong from time to time asking Laban for an animal. But instead he ate lesser foods. He may have grown his own lentils, or he may have gone out and hunted deer or roebuck or something else. Would have taken a lot more effort to do that. He could have just grabbed a ram. He never did that. He's making sure that everybody understands how he treated Laban's flocks. He's been faithful to Laban. He's worked hard for him, and he's increased him for 20 long years. But this brings us to an important concept in the Bible, which is the significance or the meaning of the number 20 within the Bible. I don't want to confuse you, but try to grasp what I'm saying here. 20 is one short of 21. 21 is the threefold seven, okay? Three is divine completion. So you think of something like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's divinely complete. Seven, as most people already know, is the number of spiritual perfection. So 21, threefold seven, would be divine completion of spiritual perfection, okay? Because 20 is one less than 21, it signifies divine expectancy. And I gotta tell you what, there are plenty of examples in the Bible to prove this. It's unanimous throughout the Bible. Let me read you a couple of them. Isaac waited 20 years to have a son while Rebekah, his wife, was barren. What we got over there? I'm just gonna wait till he goes by because those things are really annoying. Oh, it's a cute little thing too. Anyway, the second example are these 20 years that Jacob wait, worked for and waited for uh, a return to Canaan. Israel, the nation of Israel waited 20 years to be delivered from a guy named Jabin who oppressed the people of Israel. Once again, Israel waited 20 years for a deliverer and he came in the person of Samson. The Ark of the Covenant waited 20 years at a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And uh, it was off in this uh, outward area and all of the people had no contact with the Lord. They lamented after the Lord during that 20 year period. Solomon waited 20 years for the building of the two houses. There was a 20 year period between the capture and the destruction of Jerusalem. And during that 20 year period, Jeremiah prophesied continuously, divine expectancy, judgment is coming. You are going to be exiled if you don't wake up. So we have this continuous pattern throughout the Bible of 20 being a period of waiting. And it represents now. What we're looking at with these 20 years of Jacob represents the full time of Israel's waiting to go from their establishment as a people through the time of the law into the kingdom age. And this is a time of divine spiritual perfection. The kingdom age, which I have said already at least twice today, is coming soon to a dispensation near you. Can't wait, Jesus really is coming back. Verse 39, that which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. 
I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Again, Jacob makes his plea right before this assembly. There were predators out in the open field and from time to time, one would come and kill one of the flock. And although this wasn't any of Jacob's fault, he bore the loss. Later, under the law, and speaking of an exact same occurrence, here's what God directed for the people of Israel. It says, if it is torn to pieces by a beast, meaning an animal that you're in charge of, then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good what was torn. Now, the fact that this is in the law as a protection for the people indicates that it's what's right and honest. Jacob and Laban were before the time of the law. I know that. But the general principle of honesty would dictate that Jacob should not have to pay for any such loss. But he did. He always assumed the loss himself. And more, any animal that was stolen by day or by night, Laban required from Jacob. Based on Laban's dishonesty as presented by Jacob, it's an indication here that Laban could have actually been the one to steal the animals and then demand a payment for the stolen animal. And so he'd be stealing twice from Jacob. Jacob bears all of this in the presence of the people to show that he's been mistreated and he's been unfairly acted against even until the current day or the current time. And our third thought today, Jacob's protector. This is verse 40. There I was in the day, drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and sleep departed from my eyes. In this particular area of the world, if you've ever been over in the Middle East, you'll know this, the days can be very hot, and the nights will be very cold. It's kind of like Death Valley in some places. As the day heats up over the open expanses, the area literally aches from a lack of moisture. And if it weren't for wells, nothing, man or beast, could not live in this particular area. And at night, it gets so cold that any humidity that is in the air settles to the ground as frost. This is the normal weather, and it would in, be multiplied in one direction or another depending on the season of the year. The hotter the year, the hotter the day, and the cooler the year or the time of year, the cooler at night. It also seems to imply that Laban did not provide Jacob any suitable camping materials. Instead, he had to go out and fend for himself. And finally, because of the cold, because of the frost, because of the wild animals, and because of thieves, all of these things kept him awake. Sleep literally evaded his eyes for almost 20 years. And something just popped into my mind that the poor guy had four wives too, so I don't know how he ever got any sleep. But anyway, verse 41, thus I have been in your house 20 years. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Here he is in this unappealing state of employment, and he continued on in it for 20 full years under three promises. The first two were for wives, and the uh, last one was for set wages. However, seven of those years for a wife that he didn't even want. Only during the last six years was it for any wages at all, and even then, Laban continuously cheated him by changing the agreed terms time and time again. He's shown everyone right in front of them that is witnessing this discussion that the wives and the flocks are his and he was deserving of far, far more than the work that he provided. None of this can be contested because it's spoken right in the presence of all of the witnesses. And the fact that Laban wronged him is now in the open as well for all to see. Laban has acted deceitfully with Jacob and Jacob's words testify to it. Verse 42, unless the God of my father the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, 
surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Now what might seem perplexing to you is the uh, way that Jacob describes God. He says, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. Speaking of the same God, but he uses three different terms. But if we think it through, it's not really that confusing. So try to follow my logic here. By saying he's the God of my father, he's being humble. And he's saying that this God has watched over him is the same God that watched over his father. And so he's deferring the, the honor to his father, all right? Secondly, Abraham is already dead, but Isaac is alive. Therefore, God is the God of Abraham in his eternal state. There's nothing to fear one way or another. His state is set for all of eternity. However, because Isaac is still alive, God is to him the God to be feared. He walks before him in dread. Hey, this is the same God that can lay waste an entire valley, such as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He can destroy the earth by a flood, and he can bring the stars out of the sky, and he can crash them to the earth if he wants to. This is the God who controls the womb of the woman and the breath of all people. Isaac knows these things, and so he fears his God. And this is why Jacob describes him in this way. And we should note, and I will note, that nothing has changed since the coming of the law, nor has it changed since the coming of Jesus. Under the law, the wisest man ever to live, who was Solomon, said these particular words to sum up his entire life of learning. Listen to what he says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I got to tell you what, Paul says basically the same thing in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, even after the coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Despite being our kind, gentle, and loving Savior, Jesus is our Lord. He is to be respected and he's to be feared. And when we speak of him, it should be with reverence and awe mixed with that same fear. And I got to tell you what, and this is not to diminish anybody else in where they attend a church, but I am not pleased with these churches that t treat Jesus as if he's some type of a, a fist bumper. You know, hey, yo, Jesus, how you doing today? And they get up there and they have no reverence when they preach his word and when they speak about him. All you hear are platitudes and how God wants to bless you this week and he wants you to prosper and he wants you to be your friend. And they make these little motions with their hands and they try to coo you into believing that God is just a cosmic pushover. And he's not. He's the same God that sent his son to the cross because he's really, really angry at sin. And he expects us to act in a manner where we understand that our sins affect our relationship with him. So please remember that. Keep that in mind that Jesus Christ is to be feared. Yes, he's to be loved. Yes, he's our brother and our friend, but he is also our Lord. Verse 42 continues. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob now brings in more facts about the glory of God. He is the God who sees all things, including the affliction of his people, and he is God who is sovereign over all things, 
including the dreams that they have in their sleep. Jacob is implying that God even knows where we sleep and what we think in our minds. He is aware of and watching over all of these things. And so my question to you is, are you like Charlie Garrett on Thursday morning? Every Thursday I get up very early and I clean a parking lot and I clean the toilets and everything at a mall. I take care of it. And I'm there every day of the uh, week, but I go on Thursday morning at 3 a.m. And while I'm out there, I have my leaf blower and I have my earmuffs on and it's just me and God. And sometimes my thoughts are not very pleasant. I might have something that I'm angry about that I saw in the news, our president doing something stupid again. Or I might have uh, some, something that somebody said to me on Facebook that hurt my feelings and I'm sitting there kicking myself and saying, oh, poor Charlie. And instead, after about 15 or 20 minutes of this, it happens every week, I realize, you know what? I should be spending this time a little better. And so I start just praising the Lord and thanking him for all the things that are around me. I might smell something nice passed by a flower as I'm working, or I might be thinking of you at church on the beach, or somebody that needs prayer, somebody that's in the hospital at the time. And this is what we should be doing, because God really is searching our hearts and our minds day and night. Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. He's here with us, and he's searching us out. Paul says in the New Testament to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, everything that you think, bring it into captivity. Don't just let it go off willy-nilly like Charlie does for 20 minutes every week while I'm getting out my frustrations, but instead bring those things into captivity and then honor the Lord with your thoughts and with your lives and with the people that you interact with. You will find as you do these things that you tend to interact better with them. God can take the woes and the trials while you're talking to him. But as you start moving closer to God after you've gotten all of your cares off of your shoulders, you will find that your speech with the next person you meet will be pretty wonderful. And I find that every single Thursday morning. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. God came to uh, Laban and he rebuked him. And he searched him out and he determined that he needed correction of both his intents and his actions and his attitudes. How would God correct you if he came to you in your sleep tonight? As we finish up today, the question still may be unsettled in your life. Have you made a commitment personally to this wonderful God who sees into our hearts, our minds, and our dreams? This same God who watches over his people and defends them against injustice and oppression, just as he did for Jacob. Have you met him? Have you made peace with him? Give me just a couple more minutes to explain to you how you can have a personal relationship with him if you never have. Jesus Christ really loves you. This is one thing that is absolutely certain. I mean, even children know this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But what does that mean? It means that he loves you enough to take the sin that you have in your own life and that you have heaped up through these thoughts, through these actions, uh, I'll give you an example. I was uh, working in the building this past week and there were some people taking out the concrete and I heard the Lord's name pronounced several times, more than several times, and it wasn't in a friendly way. And I thought, I'm not going to go say anything. I'm going to let them finish their work. And before I left, because I left before they did, I said, I'd like five minutes to talk to you. And I talked to them and I said, do you know what that is when you take the Lord's name in vain? And they said, yeah, it's sin. And I said, do you know that he is holy and he's our creator and he could just take us out, take our breath away right now? And I talked to him for about five or ten minutes about the Lord and I don't know what they decided, that's their decision. 
But this same God that we speak ill against sent his son to die on a cross to take care of the debt that we owe for speaking ill against him. And our thoughts and our sin and our life, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. We die because we have sinned. And that's what we are due. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift is something that we don't earn. We earn death, he grants us eternal life, and it comes through one way. It comes by calling on Jesus Christ as Lord. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. If the Bible isn't true, if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then it was a huge blunder that he put himself on that cross for no reason. I gotta tell you what, but he did it for a reason. It's because he does love us. And then he came out of the grave to prove that he is who he said he was. And he did what he said he would do. He is God, he is always God, and he loves us enough to do these things. So please, if you've never taken the time to call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. I got a closing verse for you today from Romans chapter eight. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Think of Jacob. He's facing trouble. He had marauders coming after him to wipe him out. God was for him and God rebuked Laban because of it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him, meaning with Jesus, also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Could he bring a charge against Jacob? It didn't stand. And the same thing is true with you. You will be defended by God. It doesn't mean you're gonna have an easy life, but God will defend you. And someday when your persecutors stand before him in judgment, he will say, this is my child. So keep that in mind that God loves you enough to defend you and he will fulfill every single promise to you, just as the Bible says. Next week, we've got Genesis 31 verses 43 through uh, 55. This is called the witness and the watchtower. Some kind of fun little things in there. And this will be our 77th Genesis sermon. Before I give you today's poem, before we take communion, I'd like to remind you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. Our poem today is called, What is my trespass and what is my sin? Then Jacob said to Laban in his discourse, because I was afraid for I said, perhaps you will take your daughters by force. And if so, in a fight, I might end up dead. If you find your gods with whomever, men or women, do not let them live, so you shall do. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Yes, it's so. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent he went too. And into the maid's tent he went, but he did not find them and so he withdrew. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entering into Rachel's tent he went. Now Rachel, the household idol she had taken, and put them in the camel's saddle to hide. Her contempt for them cannot be mistaken. She sat on them, their power she denied. And Laban searched all about the tent, but he did not find them. And to her father she said, let it not displease my Lord by this event. I cannot rise before you from this bed. For the manner of women is with me, so pay no mind. And he searched, but his household idols he did not find. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to him plainly, what is my trespass, what is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? 
Although you have searched all my stuff, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before our brethren, don't be gruff, so they may judge between us. Let them gather around. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not. Miscarried their young, and it's true. I haven't eaten your rams, but I could have eaten a lot. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. It's something I had to do. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. I was in the day consumed by drought in the land, and by night the frost was a terrible plight, and my sleep departed from my eyes, and none of this to you was a great surprise. Thus I have been in your house twenty years. I served for your two daughters fourteen, and six years for your flock through trials and jeers, and you changed my wages ten times between. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away with an empty hand. God has seen my affliction and had pity. He has seen the labors of my hands all right, and so he came to you and rebuked you last night. God carefully looks after those he has called, and he defends them in their time of need. When those around us afflict us, he is appalled and returns upon them justice with speed. He is the covenant-keeping, holy, and awesome Lord who watched over Jacob so long ago, and we too can know him through his great word, and upon us his great riches he will bestow. Through Jesus we are brought near to our God, and through his shed blood reconciliation is made. By his hand, someday on golden streets we will trod, and from him will come still waters and blissful shade. Thank you, O God, for our Lord Jesus, who has so tenderly reached out to us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story. And thank you that this shows us without any certainty that you have not rejected your people, Israel, that you've kept your covenant with them, and that proves that you'll keep your covenant with us as well. You've promised to lead us to fountains of living water and to uh, uh, just a beautiful paradise where we can be in your presence for all of eternity. And we look forward to that day, but as long as we're here, help us to be about our business and to bring you honor and glory and to walk in your presence in fear not assuming anything from you, but being grateful for everything from you. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the people here. I ask that you just bless them abundantly in the week ahead. Just send them off in a way that will uh, fill their souls with happiness throughout the rest of the day and uh, in uh, everything that they do, the work of their hands and in the homes they live in. Take good care of them. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us in the person of Jesus, our Lord. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen.